0: James. Uh, Chapter two is where we are beginning. Um, And I just want to sort of preface this by saying that that as I go through and study the book of James, there's a lot of, for me personally, there's a lot of conviction. There's a lot of things that I feel like uh, James addresses within me, that the Lord is using it to uh, push buttons in me that need to be pushed. And so uh, that's good. And I'm very thankful that the Lord would deal with us and be faithful to his word. As he said, it won't return void. His spirit leads in truth and instructs us and teaches us about truth and righteousness and judgment. And so uh, it's, it's effective. And I, and I only say that to say that because it's convicting to me, there's the real possibility that there's probably conviction for others. And I just want you to be encouraged that as as we, as we come through the book of James, and if we experience conviction through the preaching of God's word, that's him dealing in our hearts. It's something to be thankful for, it's something to rejoice at. It's not something to uh, shy away from. And so there you have it. Uh, I, I'm the book of James is challenging for me uh, in, in a very good way. So here we are in chapter two. Um, I've never seen an episode of this particular show, uh, but there's a show, uh, Undercover Boss, right? And so you have the CEO of some company, some usually it's a chain or a franchise kind of a thing, and they come in undisguised and work alongside their employees and in in the midst of all of it the the what what the audience gets to see is this ceo who's maybe lost touch with the needs and and the desires and the ramifications of decisions up here being made how that affects these down here who actually have to put that into practice and on the other side of that, and the reason is they are, they're unfamiliar with that. They're making business decisions. They're doing things for the overall benefit of the company. It isn't that they're doing anything bad or wrong. They just don't understand how that affects the, the guy on the end who actually has to put that into practice. And on the other side of that, here is the employee who gets to talk about the boss with this new employee who is the boss. And they, you know. And in the end, they realize there's, it seems as if there's this coming together, this, uh, you know, a little bit of understanding gets sown. I don't know, maybe it doesn't always work out well. I could see potential problems, but there it is. You don't, I don't know what you're going through. You don't know what I'm going through, what I'm dealing with. None of that. And so we have these preconceived notions, these ideas about how things should be. And, and what that's going to affect and how that will, will trickle down. And it opens our eyes to the real conditions and to the problems, the universal conditions that we experience in the world today. Because whether we're at the bottom or whether we're at the top, there are things that affect us all. And there are certain needs that are universal throughout all of God's creation. Now, in the first portion of James chapter 2, which is probably the less familiar portion of James chapter 2, we encounter this idea about being a respecter of persons. And the idea that that's something we shouldn't do, that we should put that aside. And as we're going to see, God looks at that very seriously. There was a period of time and we where I had spent a lot of time uh, doing some door-to-door evangelism. As we were first starting Baseline Fellowship, we I, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors, and, and there wasn't anything wrong with it. and uh, Maybe I wasn't very good at it. There wasn't a lot of fruit from it, but met a lot of people. And I had an opportunity to go with another gentleman later, and this person... Had a real desire and and really wanted to limit things. He said, "We just we just need to go to these poor." And he had certain areas and communities that he wanted to focus on. And it was specifically because they were poor. And what he told me, he said, "The people who are wealthier, who are well off, or who are you know, and his cutoff was like middle class and and above. You know, what I mean, normal average people. He said they don't need Jesus. They don't want to hear it. They don't, and I." response was are they sinners well yeah of course they are so then they need jesus why would we skip this door and knock on that door just because we look at the the house or the size of the house and we determine based on that who should or who shouldn't hear the gospel uh, because how do we really know can i distinguish the heart of someone accurately and so james addresses and we talked about last week as we we were we're concluding james chapter 1 this single minded obedience that we're going to walk in obedience to what christ has called us to and obedience to his word and james addresses this one area of single minded obedience to the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. And he does that here in James chapter two. Jump with me. I want to just jump into verse four. We're going to come back to verse one, but James chapter two, verse four, he says, are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? The, the question. Oh man, will you hit that? Forgot my clicker. You're gonna to have to pay attention now. <laughs> the the question is this: Are you gonna sit in the place of God? That's ultimately. That's ultimately where it stands. The word respect, uh, as we get into uh, get into this, just to have it defined. The word respect, as it is here, simply means partiality. I'm going to show favoritism to this group or those people, and, and I'm going to defer my interaction with these people. I'm going to put it aside. And what it does, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we recognize it or not, is it ascribes God-like characteristics to ourselves that we don't possess. Are we all-knowing? Can I see and discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart? No, I can't. Only God can. In Jeremiah chapter 17, this is sort of a commentary on our ability to be able to interact and understand the heart of somebody. Now, don't misunderstand. God can give insight and God can give uh, miraculous discernment in situations, and in circumstances. But what I'm talking about here is the generality, where I'm going to walk by what I can see and not by faith. And so in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses uh, 9 through 10, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So while we usually will apply this to ourselves and our need to look within us and discern whether or not we're walking in obedience, whether or not we, it applies as well to our judgment or our condemnation of other people. Can I know where that's at? I'm like the CEO in disguise coming in. I have the words of life. I have the gospel. And I somehow don't know how that's going to affect you. And so I don't share it with you. Or I make the determination that you've kind of got it all together. It looks like like things are going pretty well for you. I don't want to rock. But I don't want to ruin your day or whatever it may be. Whatever the motive may be, we make a determination that is not ours to make. Jesus said, go you into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say go to those that you choose or deem worthy. And that's, don't make any mistake about it. That's what we're doing. We're showing favoritism. That's what the word means. He continues in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. To say that I can withhold or that I can make judgment, that I am a respecter of persons and I can can equitably show partiality, puts me or you in God's seat. He says in in that fourth verse, are you become judges of evil thoughts? Of means with. Are you become judges with evil thoughts? Whatever the motive may be, and it may be some fear on our part. There may be something that we're withholding uh, because uh, I'm too fearful to engage. I don't want to, or it may simply be that I am not going to share with that person. They don't need the gospel. There's no glory in, and as we progress through this section in chapter two, there's no glory. There's nothing that comes to me. I don't benefit anything from that. You know, Jesus didn't benefit anything from leaving the glory of heaven to die on a cross for you and I. This is a matter of faith. Who am I going to trust in? Am I going to trust in my own? discernment my own ability my, my own sight or am I going to trust in God and I know that's sort of heavy-handed I know that's that's it hits hard but here we are in this chapter and it's the second chapter in the book but James doesn't pull any punches he just gets right to it and I think that's why James is so convicting because we've all done this I didn't want to talk to that person in the grocery store I didn't want you know I don't have time for this whatever the motive may be I make some judgment and I become a respecter of persons in doing that. Turn through to Matthew chapter seven. There's no notes on this, but uh, it's in my notes. See, so you, gotta, you gotta pay attention. Just need you to stick with me just a little bit. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five. Jesus is here uh, kind of wrapping up, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, I just want to be careful here because there are those who will misapply this and say, listen, we don't get to judge anybody. We can determine if that's right or wrong. That's not what's being talked about. What's being discussed here is the condemnation. We don't get to condemn anybody. That's not our place. We don't get to judge uh, where they're going, heaven or hell, which is effectively sort of what's being discussed. I can make a determination that that's sin, that that's wrong, that's, that's contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. We are to do that. That's called discernment. That's, a, that's fine. So when you talk about judgment, there needs to be a little context, but what's being discussed here is condemnation. I'm not going to condemn others. Jesus says, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet it, shall it be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote of thine own, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? You hypocrite. First cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now, I realize that this is, in some respects, this is discussing believers or or at least some common faith and 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 some common foundation right that if i'm gonna say that person has sin in their life but i'm willing to overlook the sin that's in my life to overlook the beam and that that's the that's the illustration right to see the little speck in somebody else's life but this also applies outside right how am i look at that person over there they you know Obviously, they have troubles. They're they're struggling. They're having hardship, whatever it may be. As you get into Isaiah in chapter 53, and and I might be getting ahead of myself, but here's Jesus, and it says, And we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Why? Because he's he's going to the cross. We see the hardship that is there that he experienced, and we establish within our minds some condemnation. We judge Christ and say, Listen, he must have been. A terrible person. God wouldn't allow him to go to the cross to be crucified if he wasn't. And that's prophesied thousands of years before Christ comes. And the, the, the problem is that we do the same thing today. We see what's going on in people's lives, and we conclude that there's some mess there potentially. Right? And obviously, this is a very broad brush. I don't know that everybody here does that, but there's a heart behind all of this that we have to to address, and Jesus talks about it here, the idea that we're willing to overlook what's within us. In other words, we're willing to overlook the universality, the, the common need for Christ, and to withhold even the very gospel from somebody because for whatever reason, I've determined that I'm not going to share with that person. They don't need it. Turn with me to John chapter 7 for just a moment. John chapter 7, let's look at verse 24. <clears throat> and Jesus is here responding to the Pharisees um, There's a, some discussion there about the law. Um, he's talking about, beginning in verse 22, he, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise him. In. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I've made every a man every whit hole on the sabbath day so jesus has healed somebody and they're they're condemning christ because here he is doing something on the sabbath that that's work. it have healed his work and jesus responds and, and he addresses that listen there's a there's a heart behind the law uh, i mean in many regards the pharisees have completely missed the point of the sabbath and they made it a point of bondage and and legalism But aside from that, Jesus is saying, listen, you'll circumcise somebody so that the law won't be broken, even if it's the Sabbath. And he he makes that comparison, and he says, listen, this was a good thing, effectively. This is a good thing. This person was made everyone whole. He was restored to full-bodied ableness, and you're condemning me for that. And this is what he tells him in verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Judge righteous judgment. Not based on what we can see, not based on what we would would expect or, or that we can wrap our head around, but based on what God would say. In other words, we're going to look at this soberly. We're going to think about this as Christ would think about it. Judge righteous judgment. Let's look at some examples on the next the next slide here. Let's go back up to James chapter two. Let's look at verses one through three. He begins by saying, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. So he starts off immediately by giving us an exhortation, a command an imperative that we wouldn't have faith and be a respecter of persons at the same time. That shouldn't be characteristic of us as believers. And he gives some examples. He says, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come also in a poor man in vile raiment, tattered, smelly clothes, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under our, my footstool. All right, so we have two examples here. We have two people that come to your church, and when they walk in, one of them is presentable. Everything's put together. Obviously, he's well to do. We put him in the front seat, we, or, or a seat of honor. Maybe not the front seat, but we, you know, we drag the couch in here for him. We make him comfortable. Hey, can I get you a cup of coffee? We take care of them. Nothing wrong with, with being friendly and kind. But somebody else walks in who's, who's obviously living on the streets. They're, they're not put together. Maybe their hair isn't even combed. Imagine what you will. We don't pull the couch in here for that person. We, we, we sit them somewhere else. We don't invite that person to come and say, hey, sit by me. so we've made this distinction we're showing partiality we're showing favoritism it isn't that believers aren't to exercise discernment we mentioned that the idea is that we're showing preferential treatment or that we're making the, the, the determination of who is or who isn't worth the shed blood of jesus that's what's happening James is addressing that, and I don't know if it's a problem here or if he's just addressing, uh, I I think you tend to think he's addressing a more common issue. But here it is there are those that are being treated one way and those who are being treated another way, and there's a judgment, there's a determination being made. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. Leviticus chapter 19. You might hold your place here. We're going to come back to Leviticus. Remember that James is writing to Jewish believers. And he's writing to them knowing that they're familiar with the law. They should be. They were raised hearing it. it. Here it is in Leviticus, something in the scriptures that they have in their hands at that day. James is reiterating and confirming some of these very principles. Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. In righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. We're not going to have respect of persons. We're gonna, if that person is guilty, then this person doing the same thing would be guilty. There's no preferential treatment. And when we get right down to it that's how God looks at things right Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God not some people not those that look like they have everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God <laughs> God in his goodness to us <clears throat> not just to us but to all mankind for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life and if you look at brianna's other shoe john three seventeen, for did not send his son to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved right i mean the full context here it is that people need christ everyone needed christ and jesus didn't come to the world to condemn them but he came to save every one of them Yet there are those here that James is writing to, and maybe we're guilty of the same thing who are saying, Listen, those people aren't worthy. That's condemning. And it's potentially condemning to us because we've been there, we've done that. We have some further examples. Look with me in James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 we kind of looked at verse four we're going to skip that he says hearken my my pay attention hearken right listen up my beloved brethren Hath not god chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to them that love him but you have despised the poor so he's not saying and i just want to Get this out there. James isn't saying that God has somehow chosen and shown partiality to the poor. What he's highlighting here (coughs) is God's perfect judgment in contrast to our inability to discern somebody's heart. He says, you're showing preferential treatment to those who are rich. But who did God choose? God's chosen those poor, he says. That's God. (coughs) excuse me god has chosen those to be the heirs and you've despised them verse six do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called on the other side of that right we may show preferential treatment to this person who has walked in looking well and put together and well to do, yet they're the very person that might be persecuting you. They're the very person who is blaspheming in the name of God. <clears throat> wow. Would you give me a glass of water? It's probably not so bad for you guys, but I'm sure it's really bad when I cough, but that's terrible. (laughs) Or sniff my nose. All those things are probably magnified. So he's addressing this idea that we as human beings have a flawed perspective. And when we execute judgment, when we take what we can see and taste and touch and feel, we miss the mark in our discernment of people's hearts. turns me to John chapter 1, well, I'll just tell you, John chapter 1, verse 12, because this was a memory verse, right? As many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Whether they're wealthy and well-to-do, whether they're put together, thank you very much, or not, he gave them all the power to become the sons of God. There's a universal need that Jesus perfectly met, and then he gave access by the same mechanism, faith, to every single person. He wasn't on a respecter of persons. He didn't make a determination that somehow these people are worthy and somehow these aren't. No, Christ came and died for everyone. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 26 through 29. In this discussion about who God has chosen and who, why He chooses what He chooses and those kinds of things, Paul writes this, beginning in verse uh, 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That doesn't mean that God isn't desirous to see them come to faith. Because 1 Peter 3 9 will tell us that God is not slack concerning his promises. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. That's why he puts up with so much for so long. That's why he's long suffering towards us. But he continues on, verse 27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Right here, he takes a group of fishermen. And a tax collector who's, you know, just as bad or worse than a sinner. And, and he puts them together into, to be the apostles, those guys who are going to establish and found his church here on earth, who are going to pen scripture, who are going to be the first missionaries. He didn't choose the biblical scholars and the, the, the people who, like, I mean, Paul was the only one with any background. And he had to lose all that, he had to give it all up so that he might attain the knowledge of Christ. <clears throat> he chose the basings of the world that they might confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. When you look at how God operates through the Old Testament, just as an example. Here's David, right? He's not, he doesn't look like a king. He's not tall and stately like his brothers. He's the guy that comes in and Samuel thinks probably not him but who did god choose this is him why because god's looking at his heart and not his appearance verse 28 in the basings of the world and the things which are despised has god chosen yea and things which are not to bring to not things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence God's perfect judgment. We may misjudge, but God does not. And God receives all those who will come to him by faith. He does so so that he receives the glory and the honor. When God takes somebody like David and he puts him in a position where he is exalted, where he becomes king of the entire nation of Israel because he has a heart after God's own heart, God is glorified and honored. It stands as a witness to the world around him of who God is, what he stands for. They're not, they're not into their own, they're not looking for their own glory. So he gives us these examples, we have, and they're not exhaustive. I just want to point that out. These are just two examples. We may be partial, we may be a respecter of persons in many other ways. James picked something that was pertinent to those who were living in that day. I mean, maybe we decide, hey, I'm not going to share the gospel with anybody that drives a Ford. Whatever it may be, right? We, We show partiality in so many things that are inconsequential but we let those be barriers to the ministry that God has dropped in our lap. I want you to consider everything that transpired, everything that uh, had to happen, everything that was provided and all that uh we receive from salvation from what god has done what jesus finished on the cross and just consider a few things here let's talk about the goodness of god because here's the thing when we decide that that person for whatever reason however we're going to be a respecter of persons however we're going to show partiality we've decided in our hearts and minds whether it's articulated or not that two things one i know better than god and two they're not deserving of what God is offering them. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter eight. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter eight, and let's read verse nine. Just a quick review, uh, and, uh, and obviously not exhaustive review of the benefits, so to speak, that we receive in Christ. Second Corinthians eight nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, leaves all of that glory, becomes poor, becomes base, becomes in the fashion of a man for the purpose of dying on the cross, so that we might be redeemed, that we might receive, that we might be made rich. In First Peter chapter one, might have been easier had I just gone through these consecutively through the Bible. First Peter chapter one, verses three through five, we become more familiar with where things are in our Bible. We have to flip through more. That's probably not right, but that's what I'm going to say. First Peter chapter one, verses three through five: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we live in a world that is filled with anxiety and fear because there is no hope. There is nothing to look forward to. There is uncertainty. But we have this living hope in Jesus Christ. And we've been begotten again born again brought into the family of god verse four to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of god through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time i mean an inheritance that is incorruptible it can't be stolen it doesn't decay it doesn't rot away there it is reserved forever by God himself and not only that that inheritance is there but we are reserved forever by God himself we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation The certainty of our salvation, once we've accepted Christ, once we've been born again, we have the assurance and the confidence and the hope and the perseverance of all of those things. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, because that's what Scripture says. That I may say that God has never left me, nor will He leave me, nor will He forsake me, because the Scripture has promised us those things. The hope and the certainty that comes with that. The boldness that should accompany you and I. Romans chapter 8, turn there with me for a moment. Romans 8, verses 16 through 17. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glor- that, that we may be also glorified together. We talk about inheritance. We've inherited everything with Christ. As we enter into the family of God, as we come in, we enjoy all the rights and privileges that are associated with being a son or daughter, a child of the living God. He is trustworthy. God can be trusted. We have all of this here. We have this certainty and this hope that the world is desperately crying for, that they're looking for, that they desire. And they look for it in all kinds of things and they miss it. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith, as we're looking at what's being discussed there, Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Verses 24 through 27, just, just peeking into the middle of this, looking at Moses. Okay, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than riches, than the riches of of the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So, by faith, we have Moses' parents first and foremost say, This is the child that God has given us. He is a proper child. This is operating in faith. You know, here's the book of Proverbs it says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And here it is we have this child, and there's this commandment of the king that says, Listen, we're going to have to put all the male children to death we're not fearful of what man can do we're going to live in obedience to the god this is what god has given and no matter what that may bring by keeping him what certainty of hardship and even potentially death may come we're going to keep this child and god used moses obviously to deliver the nation of israel to bring him out establishes him by faith when moses was grown in pharaoh's household raises the grandson of pharaoh by faith, Moses says, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm a Hebrew. I know I'm a Hebrew. He leaves, he forsakes the benefits, the, 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 all of the things, the, as it says, the deceitfulness of sin. Everything that he could have been. Here's Moses raised as a grandson of Pharaoh. He was in line, even to rule in Egypt. And he puts all that aside. Why? Because... I'm going to be God's man. That is the purpose and the calling that he's given me. He did so in faith. He chose, as it says in verse 25, to rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He esteemed, it says, the reproach of Christ greater, of more value than all the treasures of Egypt. And so I bring all this up because we have the goodness of God and we're making some determination potentially that that person's not worthy of all of these benefits. Yet like Moses, we need to be those who would say, listen, it doesn't matter if I have time or not to talk. God's obviously put this person in my path. Let's talk. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be hard. I'm going to be late for the next thing. It doesn't matter. The reproaches of Christ whether they, sh- they are listening or not, the, the awkwardness, the, the inconvenience, all of those things are nothing. And by faith, we would esteem them to be nothing so that we might walk in obedience to what God has called us to. To make disciples, to share the gospel, to be those who, are, who, who would evangelize, who, who would share the gospel, who would live it in word and in deed in such a way that that is who we are and what we're known for that God would receive the glory. He is trustworthy. If you're late for the next thing, he already knew you were going to be late. Doesn't matter. All right, We all have a phone in our pocket. As soon as we leave, hey, I'm running a little late. We're really excited to tell you about what just happened. We can pray and rejoice together at the things that God is doing. God is good he is faithful <clears throat> now verses 1 through 7 in James chapter 2 are really summarized in verse 7 they're, they're excuse me summarized in verse 8 it's all preface to what he's getting to this is the reality this is the this is the substantive part he gives these examples he gives even in some respects, an example of how not to love people and being a respecter of persons, so that we might get to and talk about the royal law. Let's read verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Right? This is the point. This is what he's getting at. And, and all of that leads up to this point. And then everything that we have after this, in regards to works and how we live our life, is in direct context and direct reference to this verse, to showing love. Turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 19. <clears throat> back to Leviticus 19. I want to read a couple of verses there. Leviticus 19 is good reference. Now, in some respects, right, it's talking about civil cases. We're, we're we're going to execute righteous judgment as those who are making judgment between you and your neighbor. There there's a problem between you, and so they would bring it before those who were called to be in that position, and they would make judgment. All right, yeah, you stole a sheep. You're going to have to. This is what the law says. You're going to have to make restitution. Right? We execute judgment. But there is application for us to take away in verse 15 when it says thou shalt in righteous judgment, judge your neighbor. It, it removes it from the public arena, removes it from the civil penalty thing and makes it a personal application. Now, like it's 1918. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. That's personal. You know, thou, shalt not hate, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You could read this entire chapter in Leviticus 19 and find instance and example after example and after instance of similar precept. And when we take them and we kind of break them down and we look at them, we find that they're very applicable to today. The circumstance maybe looks slightly different, but it's the same. Verse 34, Leviticus 19:34. If a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him. Verse 34, but the stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you. Thou shalt love him as thyself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I chose those two verses out of all the ones that we could choose in this chapter because, one, we have our brothers, we have those within the body of Christ, and we're to love them as ourselves. And then we have those who are strangers, those who are outside of the body of Christ, and we're to love them as ourselves. It's the same. And he makes this reference, he says, to those who are strangers, and this is where I want to focus those who are strangers, he says, you should understand because you were in the same position. You were stuck in Egypt. You were slaves there. You were in bondage in Egypt. You should understand when they're here in your land. Right? Maybe he's got a specific reference to the Gibeonites who had deceived Joshua. You Remember, and now they're the water. They, they get the water for all the sacrifices and all the stuff that happens at the temple. And maybe they're being persecuted. I don't know. But those sojourners, those who are coming into the land of Israel, who are staying there, they have specific instructions, and it isn't to run them out anymore. It's to love them as yourself, because you understand. You are in the same bondage. You who are now in Christ used to be outside of Christ, struggling with the same sin, with the same uncertainty, with the same hopelessness that the world around you struggles with. All the more, love them as thyself. Turn with me to Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus confirms everything that we just talked about in Leviticus. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? He answers, number one, and correctly, obviously correctly, love the Lord thy God. Right? I mean, love God first. That's top. Second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't here necessarily define where neighbor is, but he does elsewhere. And the long and short, and what we saw in Leviticus is that everyone is our neighbor, whether they're friends, family, countrymen, or those who are outside of any of those. That's your neighbor. People are your neighbors. We're to love them as ourselves. Galatians chapter 5, just a moment. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 and 14. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but to love, excuse me, but by love serve one another. Right? We have the freedom now to serve Christ. We're no longer bound by the law of sin and death. We fall under a different category of law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That's Romans chapter 1 excuse me, 8, verses 1 and 2. Here we are, we're under a different law. We have this liberty, this freedom to live. But he says, don't let that be licensed to live however you choose or to live in a way that is contrary to everything that I have stated. We're going to walk in obedience, single-minded obedience to the Lord. And one of the chief ways that we do that is to love is to by love serve one another to love each other as ourselves he continues on for all the laws fulfilled in one word even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and here we are loving people that's what we're supposed to do whether they're in the body whether they're out of the body But we're not a respecter of persons. We don't get to say, I love that person and I don't love that person. Now, there may be different forms and different degrees, if I can use that term, degrees of love. I mean, I love my wife the most. I mean, you guys are all great, but you're not my wife. (laughs) And and that's appropriate, right? But... That doesn't mean that I withdraw and I don't love that guy over there. Or the the guy that's on the corner there at Walmart and you see him pick up his sign and go get in a vehicle that's nicer than anything you own or drive. Doesn't mean that I withhold my love from that person. Doesn't matter that they might be being deceitful or whatever the case may be. There's all kinds of things that I may not be aware of happening in that person's life, but it's not permissible for me as a believer, as a disciple of Christ, as somebody who is going to emulate and be his ambassador to be partial in who I might love and who I wouldn't love. Jesus commanded us to make disciples of every nation, tribe, kindred people every single person do our do what we can as he brings them into our life that's fulfilling the law that's this this law that we're talking about here sharing the gospel is love it's the greatest act of love that we could bestow upon anybody because of all the benefits that are associated with it because of the goodness and the faithfulness of god not because we're somehow virtuous but because god is good First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Here it is. All right. James is addressing an issue that's in the church. We're not loving people. (laughs) And Paul elsewhere in the Thessalonian church says, I don't even have to talk to you about this because God has taught you you're supposed to love each other. And either they're doing a really good job or he's like, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to waste the time because you already know. And God's going to deal with you about that. The same is true of us. We know we're quick to make excuses. We're quick to be partial. We're quick. It's our nature as fallen people. And maybe we need the reminder. And that's why we're here in the book of James. Maybe that's why it hits me so hard because I've been the guy who, man, I don't have time today. I don't want to talk to that person in the grocery store or whatever it may be. I've been there. I know exactly what James is talking about. Because I've done it, and it's time to stop doing it, and it's time to start doing what God wants me to do—to love that person. He goes on and he talks about, and he he gets into this universality of sin, and he and he talks about that because here it is that there's this universal love that we're supposed to be showing that God—it's reciprocal of what God has shown us. But in addition to that, the, the commonality of the need. So there's no degrees of sin. Sin is sin. And I want you to note something here, that God puts being partial, that, that being a respecter of persons, he puts it on par with being a murderer or an adulterer. He takes it pretty seriously. And when I put that together in my brain, because I'm slow, when I put that together in my brain, is like, ooh, Yeah, that's pretty serious. I'm going to have to think this through, Lord. (laughs) I'm going to have to repent. There's going to be some things happen. Let's look at it. Verses 9 through 11. If you have respect to persons, you commit sin. And are convicted of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I mean, there's a universal statement that there it is. If, you, if you've broken the law at any point, you're guilty of all of it. You are a sinner. Sin is sin. That's what he's saying. There's no degree of it. It doesn't matter if you stole a pencil uh, or if you stole a car. You're a thief. It took something that was not yours. It doesn't, uh, there's no degree in that. A little white lie versus uh, you, you know, a big lie that it's the same. If you offend in one point, you're guilty of all of it. Verse 11, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Here he is using the same example. If you are a respecter of persons, you commit sin. And then let me give you two examples that if you break this law, if if you're an adulterer, but you didn't kill somebody, while that may not seem quite as bad, it's the same. If you're a respecter of persons, but you didn't commit adultery, it doesn't seem as bad, but it's sin. It's the same in God's eyes. <clears> 1 <throat> John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 4. let turn a few pages back. He says, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is a transgression of the law. We just read in the law, in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. That we aren't to be partial in our judgment. That we aren't to be respecter of persons. Not only that, here's the word of God elsewhere throughout Scripture telling us, don't be a respecter of persons, that is sin. Okay, so let's just get that clear. James outlines this universal need. Romans 3.23, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And the problem for everyone who has sinned is that the wages of sin is death. They're stuck. The reality of hell, the reality of condemnation, because they're unwilling to come, or because they're well, because they're unwilling to come, because they won't believe in Christ. That's a, that's everyone that we ever meet. That's every neighbor every person that we've ever talked to. Let's talk about condemnation. Okay, it turns me to John chapter 8 for just a moment. John chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. Now, in this, this is, the, this is where the, the woman was caught in adultery. And she's brought before Jesus by all these guys. They've caught her in adultery in the very act that says, I mean, there's no question that she, she's guilty. And they bring her before Jesus and they do this because they're trying to catch him, they're trying to trip him up. Oh, Jesus, he talks about all that lovely dovey stuff, you know, where he didn't come to condemn the world. How's he gonna deal with sin? Right? That's God's arena. That's what he does. But he says here in, in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, they said, tempting him that he might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, he stands back up. And, and, and here's the thing, right? We don't know what he's writing in, in the dirt. I mean, he just be making random lines. We don't know. There are those that would theorize, well, he's just writing down all the sins of the people who were standing there. We don't know that. We don't have to. It doesn't have to be anything like that. Could it be? Sure. Let's not put things in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. He is there acting as if he doesn't hear them. And then as they continue to pester him, as they continue to pursue this train of thought, Jesus stands up and he responds with this. He that is without sin among you let him cast the first stone at her. Because the punishment for adultery is death, that you would just stone this woman. And Jesus says, if you are without sin, if you yourself are above all that you're condemning her, because sin is sin, whether it's adultery, whether it's respecter of persons, whether it's murder, sin is sin. And you who are without sin, You who are perfect, flawless, never sinned, never been there before, you can stand and condemn somebody. That's what he says. Cast the first stone. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even under the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. They're convicted in their own conscience. Yeah, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I failed. I know that I've been a respecter of persons. I know that I've done this or that I've done that. I know that I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And for you and I, as believers, we also know that Jesus Christ has saved us. And when Jesus looked at him up himself and saw none but the woman, he said, Woman, who are those? Where where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus is going to deal with sin. God is going to deal with sin. That's his, that's his realm. That's his jurisdiction. That's what he does. But for you and I to be like these Pharisees who would bring somebody before Jesus Christ and say, listen, this one isn't worthy. They're not deserving, which is essentially what we do when we are respecter of persons. We're just like these Pharisees. Who, as we talked about earlier, have a beam in our eye? We don't want to look at anything because we're so focused on how terrible that person is over there, how unworthy, how whatever the case may be. We put these degrees, these artificial degrees of sin, up, and well, that person's really far gone. Yeah, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That. As far gone as they are, he would leave the 99 to go find that one. Listen, I'm not that enthusiastic about finding a single penny, but I pick it up every time, right? Jesus says, listen, that, that penny over there, that's smashed on the railroad tracks and then scratched around the parking lot thats it's all disheveled and dirty and looks like nothing. It's still a penny and it's got value and I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to put these other 99 aside and i'm going to go after the one and i'll tell you this that we the the bible says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel right it's a rough paraphrase we get the privilege of being the mechanism after the one We get the privilege and the honor and the joy of being those who get to tell people, like Jesus said in John three seventeen. Jesus didn't come to condemn you, but he came to save you. I realize we're talking about your sin. I realize that that's uncomfortable. And I realize that that leaves you wondering about your worth and your value, wondering about whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. Let me just tell you what God himself, the creator of the universe, did and says about all of that. I want to close this morning and hopefully with some further push, hopefully some encouragement. Because we have to ask the question, who am I? As we get into this, Jesus, excuse me, James, he tells us in verse 12, he says, so speak you and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, has shown no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. We can't forget that we are disciples of Christ. And that means a couple of things. It means number one, that we are His, that all those benefits, all those promises that we talked about just very briefly a a little while ago, all of that is still true and certain for us. That we have the assurance of our salvation, that we have hope, that we have this looking forward to and the expectation of eternity with our creator not separated not condemned not existing for eternity in a lake of fire under torment and persecution and 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 judgment for the sin that we've committed we are forgiven you have to remember that first and foremost Turn with matthew chapter 18 <clears throat> matthew chapter 18 let's begin in verse 28 It also means that as we remember that we are a disciple, because of the forgiveness that we've received, how do we steward that? Matthew chapter 18, we have a little bit of a discussion about the stewardship of mercy and grace. Jesus is speaking here. Uh, I want to begin in verse 28. And just so you are aware, right, this is the parable where here is this, these guys and they all owe more than they could ever pay. And the first one gets brought before the the ruler and he gets forgiven. His debt is forgiven. Listen, I can't pay. He's like, that's fine. I'll cover that. And that servant, after he leaves, he's just been forgiven everything that he owed. He goes out into the street and finds the guy that owes him 10 bucks and he grabs him by the collar and says, pay me now. And if you don't pay me now, putting you in prison. And the ruler who has just forgiven him finds out about it. It's like, listen, you were forgiven millions of dollars, and you're going to hassle this guy that owns you 10 bucks? That's what's happening in this parable. That's where it's at. We pick it up here in verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, By the way, just exactly what he had done previously with the ruler that he couldn't pay. Have patience with me, and I will pay thee. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. In other words, they were indignant. They were beside themselves. Are you kidding me? And they came and they told their Lord all that was done. Then this Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that that debt because thou desired me, because you asked me to. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother that trespasses. (laughs) Here's this idea that you and I have been forgiven everything. But are we going to withhold that very need that we can provide? Are we going to withdraw from that? Are we going to, you're somehow unworthy? Are we going to be that respecter of persons? Or are we going to operate in the same love that we have received, that reciprocation? That God, in his love for us, sent his son to die that we might be made righteous while he was made sin. And then declare, and here we are, justified, made like we'd never sinned, and declared so to be by God, preserved as such by him. Why would we withhold that same honor, that same? love and compassion from somebody else. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18. <clears throat> Micah chapter 7. Oh, <clears throat> verse 18. There, there's a statement here. And it says, Who is a God like unto thee? And this is a reminder for you and I. I mean, it should give us some encouragement. It should give us some idea that it doesn't matter who that person is, he's not a respecter of persons, and we shouldn't be either. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Or you, you hear people talk about the vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament. I'm just here to tell you that's an inaccurate picture it's not correct here it is being discussed here is micah rejoicing because who is like there's no other god like you i mean first of all there's no other god right but secondly all the other gods that are being celebrated and falsely worshiped they're not like you and that they're vengeful why because they're made after the image of these people God's going to execute justice and and judgment, and that's appropriate. That's His venue. But this is His heart. He delights in mercy. He would rather see everyone turn to Him. He would rather have all be saved than have to condemn anyone. And I'm convinced that from Genesis to Revelation, that's what the Bible is about. First John chapter four as we close this morning. Last reference. First John chapter four. Verses eight through eleven. <clears throat> he that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he should love us and send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to be be dealt with by your word. And God, I pray that you would, by your grace, help us to be those who would be yielding to your word. I know, Lord, that you've dealt with me, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do so in areas where I have much to grow in. And I pray that for everyone here. Lord, would you, by your grace, help us to be those who are committed and, and, and purposed to reflect the love that you have so freely shed upon us with everyone, with all of our neighbors. Help us to weed through and put off all the excuses and all the why nots. And Lord, may we not be a respecters of people, but may we fulfill your royal law in showing love to people around us. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We praise you, Lord, for the privilege and the honor it is to be your servants and to be those who would take that message to the world around us. Prepare now the hearts of, Lord, those that you will bring in, in, into our lives that we might share with. And God, I pray for everyone here and myself included, that we would be bold witnesses for you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. And as we have opportunity to sing and to praise and give adoration for who you are and all that you've done, Lord, I pray it would be from our hearts. We ask now, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.